If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we have a long and frankly awesome conversation with MLB veteran turned uh, journalist Doug Glanville. Doug is arguably the world's number one Hall and Oates fan. And if you don't want to believe us, just take it from John Oates himself. That's right. We brought Doug on to talk Hall and Oates, and then we got John Oates on to talk Doug talking Hall and Oates. It's meta. It's rock. It's everything you want it to be. We also are going to talk about the the breaking news today that we're taping this on uh, the NFL player protests. We're going to talk about Friends as a cultural uh, a, a cultural touchstone that is uh, transforming the Major League Baseball <laughs> uh, Players Association, uh, which is true, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Two of my co-hosts joining us this week on a line from downtown Chicago. He is a world-renowned PR representative who has logged time with the Colorado Buffaloes, the Green Bay Packers, and of course, many global brands. And I bring up Green Bay Packers, Adam Willard, because it's the Just Not Sports Bowl kicking off right now as we tape this on Sunday. <laughs> Bengals at Packers. I'm wearing a road Boomer Esiason jersey with DIY letters on the back that are only missing one of Boomer's multiple eyes. So, Adam, give me a score prediction. Uh, let's go 34, 13 Packers. Okay. I'm going to go 115 to three <laughs> Packers Packers. Uh, See, I, fatalism I, is the true mark of a Bengal fan. You can, you can tell there's <laughs> only right. so many, there's only so many hours in the day that I, uh, that I can devote to Bengal stuff. So, when we reach that point where I lose faith in the team, like a good example, instead of like reading about this game this morning when I had a few minutes, uh, I just started looking up Sam Darnold highlights because I was like, let's see what the quarterback class <laughs> has going on for me to get excited about. Uh, also joining us from our Brooklyn, New York Bureau, seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes. Uh, Gareth, I was just remarking to you, uh, I baptized my second daughter today. Is there any better feeling than coming home on a Sunday from church and taking off church clothes? Yeah, that is a particularly awesome feeling and at any point in your life. <laughs> like, it feels great when you're a little kid, as a teenager, and as an adult. Walking through the door, kicking off your shoes, loosening the tie, and knowing you're going to spend the rest. It's, it's also, there's something about the weekend aspect of it where you go from Sunday best to cut off shorts and paint splatter t-shirt that really <laughs> makes the transition perfect. In fact, I was going to say it's really hot in Chicago today. It's like, it's like 80 plus degrees and it's so too. much more gratifying. 
Yeah, it's so much more gratifying taking off fancy clothes on a hot day versus like you know, the, like the, like you know, the, the if you go during Christmas, it's like okay, great, I, it, you know, now we're done. We can just focus on like Christmas Eve and Christmas stuff. But it's still like just to get like the sticking. Like, I got that layer of sweat on me now. I'm just like, ugh, I just need to sit on a couch and tape some just not sports. Hell yeah, you wash know, your balls. Cause that's my biggest problem during you, during the heat. You what? Did you wash your balls? You know, ball sweat. <laughs> nah, man, gold bond. Oh, perfect, baby powder. <laughs> All right, and with that said, we are going to take the. Uh, that's a good transition to uh, take the <laughs> open of the show and make it wide open. Anything around the world of the sports that is not the games is up for debate. Uh, Gareth, kick us off on this uh, Sunday afternoon. New a news making Sunday, I would add. I like that this is the week you're like, I'm not going to kick it off. Gareth, why don't you take this one? Uh, We're taping this during the middle of the NFL action on Sunday, September 24th. Yesterday, the president, or Friday, the president called out Colin Kaepernick and any other NFL player who protests the national anthem by kneeling, uh, calling Kaepernick a son of a bitch, and saying anybody who protests... The national anthem should be fired from the league. Um, yesterday, Saturday, as I'm sure all of you know, all the uh, a host of owners and Roger Goodell issued statements of varying levels of angry, harsh, what have you. And today there have been more protests, but not as many as you might anticipate. I think the most interesting thing is teams just uh, altogether skipping the national anthem. I feel like this was a clear-cut moment where it's not about an election. This is not about, you know, internet games or what have you. I mean, this is a man with the largest bully pulpit in the world using it to call a player, specifically a black player, a son of a bitch, for protesting. And I don't know about trolling theory or long-term election strategy. It felt to me like this was the moment to try to draw a line in the sand about what we're going to do as people and how we want to be represented. So far today, I think the protests have been... I don't want to say mild, but just like a slightly more populated version of what we've seen already. Uh, I think teams just not showing up on the field altogether is an interesting, is causing people to look in an interesting way at how this all began in 2009. Uh, And basically teams were never on the field for the anthem before 2009 when the NFL got money from the defense department to put players out there to show greater patriotism and, boy, does that now look like a great case study on the log of unintended consequences. But um, what I think has been most interesting today uh, to me has been watching things like the pregame shows. Uh, ESPN and Rex Ryan and the Fox pregame show with Terry Bradshaw and seeing middle-aged white men who would potentially be Following the demographic of Trump supporters, Ryan admittedly won, 
uh, coming out and bashing the president for this on national television on a football broadcast, not a highly, not a highly polarized party line um, news choice. So that to me was the most interesting and I think uh, interesting example of how all this played out. Yeah. So my take on this, I, I, I know when we talked about the election and Trump being elected a long time ago, I really had a sincere hope that there would be some good discussion between those who voted for Trump and those who voted for Hillary. I've kind of given up on that at this point, kind of just want it to go away. I, I think on the other side of things, the comments I've seen from, uh, from conservatives who are critical of this is how can you be a millionaire and be so upset with the country that made you the millionaire? And I would ask the question, just I would ask that question right back to them is there's got to be something seriously wrong uh, and dysfunctional with our country if those guys who have benefited so much from the structure of this country are still upset by the way they're being marginalized. I've been pretty successful in my career as a communications person, but once a week as a large black man, someone will ask me if I played football or basketball. People are surprised when I tell them that I listen to country music. Uh, I've been called the whitest black guy in the world. People are very uncomfortable when you don't fit into what their expectation of you should be. Um, and it's just exhausting. I think the cumulative effect of living that life, and I have, I have a great life. I'm not complaining. I'm not calling everyone racist. But those things and the things that Trump says that perpetuate that, those are the things that are, that are exhausting. I've given up on him, but I really hope that players continue to take a stand because I think they feel marginalized in the same way. I think um, they're viewed as basketball players and or football players. And when you read the comments, uh, are they're either supportive comments or they're comments that say, uh, stay in your lane, focus on what you do on the field and don't have any opinion. I think it's great that players are taking a stand because all of this is exhausting. All right, so Adam, so as we consider the middle and I look, I love that this debate is happening and I love that a lot of the, the players and owners have s sort of started to stand up for themselves a little bit. All that being said, and I saw some people arguing yesterday on Twitter that this was the end of stick to sports. I'm not saying that this is the best, the best angle for protests, but I am saying that this would be the best thing if you just want to make sports about sports. Why not steal a page from the book of the Steelers today and the Titans and the Seahawks? And why not go back to a time where teams are just not out for the anthem and rem like remove patriotism from sports? And can we go back to a time where teams would just play football? I, I get it. I just think it's a hard genie or it's a hard bit of toothpaste to put back. I mean, because you look at like the Whitney Houston Super Bowl performance, you look at 9-11 and the Super Bowl after that, patriotism has become a part of sports the same way that protest and social activism has become a part of sports. And, and um, 
you know, I mean, it, it's important to a lot of people. I, I'm not saying that I I am all for it. I think, you know, most of the Steelers stayed in the locker room today during the protest, and the game happened, and you know, it didn't it didn't they change lost. anything in terms of the yeah, it didn't change anything in terms of the performance on the field. Yeah. Um, but I I just wonder if that's even possible anymore. Do you think it's the end well, of stick to sports? I, I guess that's I would ask. Go ahead. I guess I would ask. I would guess I would ask the question: Has it ever been um, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, during their times were outspoken athletes who used their platforms to speak about social injustices? I don't know. I feel like we might have this nostalgia that there was a time where people just talked about sports, and certainly there are athletes like Michael Jordan who had powerful platforms. They didn't utilize them to address social injustices, but I feel they've been more criticized than praised. So I, I don't know that we're returning to anything. It, do you agree with the idea that this is the end of stick to sports? Is this a cycle? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I just, I think you have to look at the co- the causes ESPN supports. Can you have the Jimmy V foundation? I know it's not the same thing, but can you have the Jimmy V Foundation and can you have the ESPYs, which te- seems to celebrate um, those with diversity and those with challenges as an organization and put those causes front and center and try to ignore um, things that might cause some controversy? I get that there's economics involved, but it seems a bit hypocritical to me. And ESPN, a company that boasts such a diverse um uh, d- diverse group of employees to silence them uh, seems to be a mistake. Yeah, me, me too. I think, I think, I think it would, it would just behoove us all to listen more. Like everybody gets so outraged when someone has an opinion. Let them have their opinion. Like I just, I don't understand. I, I, I go online. I don't know. Even online, I'm seeing liberals attacking other liberals today because somebody says maybe it'd be great if we protested Donald Trump for. Uh, by kneeling for for every cause, and someone's like, "No, get your own," you know, or or somebody's like crediting the white players kneeling, and they're like, "Megan Rapino did it, whatever." It's just like, it's it's not a competition. It's not it's not like can we not silence people? Can everybody just have an opinion? And whatever happened to the days of like, I heard it, but I don't agree with it. It is not a zero. Uh, intellectual thought is not a zero sum game, and I have no problem seeing Will Kane or. Uh, uh, any of these, you know, more conservative voices voicing their opinions that I do, uh, Jamel or Bomani Jones or any of these athletes that are that are doing anything today, uh, it's a, it, it's what America's all about. I think rather than approaching each other with such venom, I think it, I watch Fox News not to be angry. Um, but I've probably watched more Fox News in the past year than ever because I watch it with a genuine curiosity because it is simply a place that I don't come from and I can't relate to the line of thinking, but I am curious. I'm always curious in life how people got to where they are. So um, we're doing it right now. Uh, we are guys with uh, who come from different places who have very different lives and different opinions on things, but we're able to have a healthy discussion. So I, I don't think the internet um, is the, has been a healthy place for those discussions. Um, but maybe it can be. Yeah. The, I, I'm actually, of all things, when it comes to the internet, I'm taken back to 
when Isaiah Thomas got traded for Kyrie last month and that dude in Boston for just inexplicable reasons like burned an Isaiah Thomas jersey. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, so, like, what? Whole, but it's also like that's where like he's an idiot. One guy did this, and then the narrative becomes Boston fans burning Isaiah Thomas. Like, you can find one idiot on the internet to represent any belief. And then the media signal boosts that, and it becomes a story. Like, let's all just take a step back. And I think we all have to be better about just filtering news. I'm glad you brought up the Isaiah Thomas jersey burning thing, because I've noticed a new trend uh, on social media, which is the fake burn. Uh, this happened when Kyrie went to Boston. Mm. Uh, and then I saw it yesterday when the Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony trade was announced as well, that people set a lighter on top of the Jersey. And then instead of lighting it on a fire, like you think they're going to do, they put a thank you card yeah, on top yeah, of the Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Thanking that Thanking yeah. that player for their time with the team. Now, now coming full circle to this conversation, I don't know if that will happen with this uh, with the current protests, but I do think, in a very small way, it shows that social media can have a positive impact, particularly in the world of sports. And maybe there are some ways similar to the. Uh, tributes to these players that we will be able to have healthy, positive discussions around really hard issues as well. We wanted to timestamp this. We wanted to be clear on that. So I want to end this by saying the Just Not Sports Bowl is going on. What is the score right now so we know exactly when this conversation ends? It's 7-7, ladies and gentlemen. The Bengals are making it. The Bengals have scored a touchdown. The Bengals have scored a touchdown. Amazing. AJ Green's on my fantasy team, and he scored the touchdown, so I'm happy. Uh, yeah, me too, man. Me too. All right, real quick, mine. I just thought this was hilarious. I saw this headline that um, uh, it was by James Wagner in the New York Times that Friends, the sitcom, is still a huge hit with Major League Baseball players who watch it. What I didn't realize, I clicked through it, I was just like, what? And then I realized like a lot of them, a lot of the foreign players watch it to learn English. Huh. And I was like, oh. So, are we going to have a generation of baseball players who, when they're interviewed in a post game, do something like, "Could that hit be any better?" <laughs> or like, <laughs> like are the friends are the friendisms going to be like the new millennial uh, the new millennial craze for like the next ten years in, in in interviews? I don't know. I hope so. I hope so. That is wide open for this week. Uh, we will be following, I'm sure, the the stick to sports dialogue as it as it as it rages on uh, in future episodes. But right now, we're going to get into a really awesome conversation we had with uh, longtime Major League Baseball veteran Doug Glanville. Uh, Doug is with longtime Major League Baseball veteran Doug Glanville. Doug is a uh, a guy who's written for the New York Times and the Atlantic and a lot of other publications as he's kind of crafted a second career in journalism. He himself is an advocate uh, for a number of social issues. He's been involved in, uh, in uh, incidents of racial profiling and been outspoken about it. So we get into a little bit of that. But then we go deep, man. What this show does, Hall and Oates, Doug, lifelong fan, 
loves hollow notes. Had no idea they were two white dudes until he was like 13. Pretty hilarious story. <laughs> and uh, uh, met met John Oates backstage. The two kicked off a friendship. And so we, we talked to Doug all about it. And then we called the man himself, Mr. Oates. We caught him uh, the morning before a show in Los Angeles, sold-out show. Band is uh, seemingly as popular as ever. So it's a really fun kind of character study about uh, a, an athlete learning to appreciate uh, someone else who's really successful in their field and then sort of the mutual admiration and respect they get from one another uh, once they get to know each other. So long interview, stick around. Afterwards, we'll be back with our distractions. Okay, so let me start here. What is the role that, um, you know, speaking out of plays in the modern environment for for athletes and members of the sports media who I think more than ever are refusing to to stick to sports as as some fans uh, want them to. Well, you know, I would say it's to be determined that role. It's evolving, and I don't know if it's ever been something simple to just put into a box and categorize. It's uh, it's been a living organism. Mm-hmm. For for quite some time. I mean, you think back to uh, a lot of key moments uh, over the years where athletes took certain positions or sports media took certain positions, and um, it, it's created awareness. It's created conversation and maybe controversy sometimes. But uh, you know, the whole idea of sticking to sports. I, you know, I'm kind of thankful a lot of people didn't speak stick to sports like Jackie Robinson or Roberto Clemente or you know so many great figures in the game that I that I care about. I mean, it's uh, they are in a position to uh, you know make change or at least bring awareness. And and the thing is, I don't I can't judge someone for using the platform that they believe is the best one for them or the one that they have the most influence. I, you know, I'm very fortunate that I can write in different places. I can go to I have a lot of other venues where I can address things that I found to be effective. So I didn't feel like I needed to kneel, for example, in a Kaepernick scenario, but you know, those were his tools. And, um, you know, so, and, and sure, I, the, when I watch whatever show I'm watching, I'd like to sit down and just enjoy, you know, whatever it is, game of Thrones or whatever. But, um, but the reality is, more and more as the players are so much more tangible, uh, Twitter, social media, Facebook, there, there's no off button. And, and I think when there's no off button and you want all this access and what comes with it is their true life. It, you know, uh, you, you, you have to add in that there's downtime and there's stress. And so that to me is a natural trade-off with the trends of social media that if you, you're in everybody's locker room and you want mics on everybody and all that, well, well, I'm not just playing sports. And, and we also have to keep in mind the players that have certain experiences, whether, whatever challenges it may be, law enforcement or you know, trying to get a taxi or whatever, you know, uh, they don't get to just be athletes. You know, that's the thing. Like, it sounds great. Like I get to sit there and they, I just want to watch the game. I don't want to be bothered. But those athletes on the field do not have that, that luxury. Even even in the three hours there, there's so much going on post-game, pre-game, that uh, there's very little time to just be an athlete. The only time I remember doing that was when I was playing wiffle ball with my brother when I was like seven. <laughs> Uh, by the way, Gareth and I are accomplished wiffle ball players going back to our youth in Ohio. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, house rules that we could lay out here for a separate episode. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. 
I love Doug. It's interesting you brought up the trying to get a taxi. Uh, there was a I was reading something on Twitter today. Trevon Free, who writes for Samantha B, posted that he posted a picture of himself holding an Emmy, and he was like, "I can't get a cab right now," as he's like standing on a street yeah. holding an Emmy. Um, I was like, "That's fairly stark." Um, but. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you was, how did you balance that when you were a player? I mean, we've um, we've seen and read a lot of your work from after your playing days, but as you were a player, how how did you find the best pl- way to get your voice out? As we've been seeing now, I mean, you 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 were on the leading edge, or kind of overlapped the birth of social media, so yeah. Well, it it um, it's changed for me. I've I've evolved more uh, to be more vocal, and I've also found this phenomenal tool in writing. You know, that was mm-hmm. post career. I mean, I, I had fantastic English teachers in high school, and I wrote, but it wasn't really until I sort of sat down and watched, you know, read about the Mitchell Report exposing all the steroids in baseball that I really found a, a, a platform in media. But as a player, I, you know, I kind of referenced Curtis Granderson with the Mets who, who said, there's so many ways to address these issues, whatever inequities. It's not always has to be jump on the hot mic that's on right now because someone's bringing attention to it. Uh, you know, it's about the longer behind-the-scenes work also. So whether you work in education with high schools and try to find job job training and all these other ways that you can have direct impact and actually more on a granular level where you're touching the fabric of the issue, that that's equally important. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, maybe it's not on Twitter. Maybe it's not that sexy. Maybe it's not, you know, retweeted and, and posted all over the world. But the reality is, in the end, you can do all that, but that's finite until the next news cycle and the sustainable work is something that you know is what really endures that you are more hands-on so when i was a player i did much more of that you know working different organizations and philadelphia futures was one i you know think about and and um and plus you're just really busy and running around in games and it's, it's a lot harder to follow up but once my career ended i saw such a natural marriage between um you know social justice equality bringing awareness and and sports and then when i combined that with a media career it was uh, the trifecta so you you mentioned philadelphia there hollow notes obviously with some philly roots you went to penn um at the same like this is not small you have a law named af- named after you or that you helped get on the books in connecticut like how much of it that was fascinating to read about, I have to say. And, it, you know, the, there was it was a profiling case in Hartford. And do you view that now as a part of your legacy equal to or up there with your baseball career, your writing, like the activism and really like granular on the books social justice work to get that enacted? Um, a part of your legacy is now certainly tied to Connecticut. Sure. I mean, and, and, you know, beyond that, I didn't really think of it, at least certainly at the time, as, you know, for my own um, footprint. I mean, I, I wanted to address something that I felt could benefit many people. Even just the dialogue about it could be mm-hmm. significant, and I think that it, it was. I did not choose the experience, and, and uh, it was, you know, I don't know, if, just to recap, I mean, I, I was just shoveling my driveway um, in a 
snowy day in, in my uh, house in uh, my house in Hartford, and there was an officer from the next town over, which was West Hartford, um, was kind of looking for someone. And it was you know it took a while to unearth what actually happened, but in, in in a nutshell, the exchange was he approached me and asked me directly without introduction or anything, just saying, uh, "Are you trying to make extra money shoveling people's driveway around here?" Basically, so you can imagine that you know you're, you're right. in your own driveway. Right. And, you know, and then all the context, right, police and African-American and all the things that kind of rush to your mind about this could go badly, even if it's a misunderstanding. And, and uh, you know, so it, but it led, you know, I wrote this article for The Atlantic and it, you know, opened up a lot of conversations. And I, I engaged with West Hartford and uh, a lot of their community members were fantastic. They, you know, they, they eventually jumped on board. So it was a very collaborative experience. And that's what I appreciated the most. The slow work is what endures, but it's not, it, it's not always, you know, what is that vocal and invisible, right? You have to kind of, to make a law, it was like 18 months. It was like, but in that process, because it's slow, you bring more people on board, they invest, you get expertise, you learn to hear the other side, the other perspective. And then when you actually come up with a solution, it's much more collective and more people are invested in it. And I, and I feel that that's the change that, that really works. Anybody can go on Twitter in, in 140 characters, but it's, it's that, heavy lift uh, that's going right. to really change our world yeah i i loved the i think the atlantic article gave a great sense of um i'm going to use a bad pun here but like the snowball effect of how all of that went into action like you wrote about how you felt the morning of this incident and then how uh, profiling changed your mood that day and then the reactions to it and emails started to get sent and meetings started to happen and it was like oh yeah I guess that's how these things happen it's not just sort of like you know you know certain things can happen through protest and um, very sharp reactions uh, very immediate reactions but th what you described was something very granular very uh i don't want to say slow moving but it had a methodical nature to it that led to concrete results um so highly recommend to no, anyone. absolutely yeah yeah and and realize the access is the power right you have i mean i learned a lot about the fact that, yes, being a professional athlete, being working at ESPN at the time and all these things, it mattered because I had access. I also had the luxury of time. I had a lot of time to follow up. And in the process of working on a law, you realize how difficult it is if you can't, like, be off on work on a Tuesday or, you know, you can't go to the public hearing. And if you can't go to the public hearing, you can't. You know, and so it, the access is really something we need to open up more to hear more people because it you know for me to stay on the accelerator as long as i did you know, mm -hmm. to, with so many people state's attorney the dean of the law school and you know state reps and for me to do this was you know took a lot of time and yeah, obviously i had to have the luxury to be able to afford it yeah you mentioned in there uh, your playing career, your writing. Obviously, that came up around this Atlantic piece. I do want to shift gears. We pride ourselves on this show about not talking about sports specifically, but I would be remiss if right. I didn't ask uh, at least one question. Look, uh, growing up reading about baseball, Jimmy Pearsall was a bit uh, of – I don't want to say an idol of mine, but he was someone who I was always interested in. My dad would tell me stories of watching him play growing up or like the history around him. Uh, my 
um, I married a woman who grew up uh, just outside Boston, and I was given, like, right around the time we got married, her grandfather gave me an autographed Jimmy Pearsall baseball, which would, what I love most about it was it is signed. On one side, it has its signature. On the other side, it says 1951 Elks Club outing, <laughs> which <laughs> feels sort of perfect for a Bostonian Jimmy Pearsall baseball of the era. And so I read, uh, when he passed away recently, I read your remembrance of working with him uh, as a coach and how you two were fairly different and didn't get along so well at first. And then a a very important bond was formed there. So I was wondering if you could just, if you had any stories or anything you wanted to share about uh, Jimmy Pearsall before we moved on to John Oates. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was well. Jimmy was a fantastic coach, and and we did not start off well. I mean, mm. the first time we were, he was roving instructor. We came out, and I mentioned it in the article that I came, you know, right on time. It was like you know four o'clock or whatever it was, a pre pre game practice, and I, and I, he was already yelling at me at the time. And he just <laughs> he said, "Look, you know, being on time is five minutes late," and that, that started the yeah, I like so, it. So we, you know, yeah, he was he was fantastic. But he, you know, you had to sift through a lot of the challenges. You know, he would yell at you, and he was he was passionate, and you didn't know where he was coming from. And then all of a sudden, you started to realize he loved teaching. Mm-hmm. He was a really expert, had amazing drills, and he just cared about you getting better and taking pride in defense, which he thought was something mm-hmm. that you know people don't as as much as like hitting and where you know where the money is or whatever. So he he was you know, became a, a tremendous advocate in my career, even though we started off as oil and water. And But in the end, you know, even with tremendously different, diametrically opposed backgrounds on paper, I guess you could say, we, you know, we became friends and we had a great rapport, respect. And, um, you know, I really, when he passed, I really thought about all these things that I heard from his wife. And, you know, that was a great honor. That's the great honor of writing when you can write a tribute and it moves people, and and you get to hear from the family to to say how well you captured his life. I think that hmm. was the greatest honor of really writing it. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. And look, I mean, we we've talked about some serious stuff on 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 the top of this, but I want to ask the most serious question of all, which is, uh, Doug, are you the first and only person to get into the Ivy League due specifically to Hall and Oates? I mean, that's a good... I'm going to go and say yes. I'm going to throw it out there. Like, I'm not sure how many people... I'm not sure how many people put uh, as John Oates as one of the answers to your essay to your University of Pennsylvania application. Uh, I don't I don't know if many people have done that. I, I'm going to say I'm, I'm the first, maybe the only. But um, Can you walk that true. back for us, too? I, I mean, can you, can you kind of give our listeners a, a quick overview? I mean, you're, you're in high school, you're applying to schools... Uh, you know, you, 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 you're, you're sending into pen, and then, and then, you know, th- this essay, which I feel like is just an awesome hold, story. Hold on, before you do, I have to say, Doug, like we've read your essays in the New York Times, in the Atlantic, and what we're really calling to talk about is your college, college admission admissions <laughs> yeah. essay. Yes, that's all good. Well, any hall notes, I, I could talk for for days on on that passion but uh no it, it was a, it was a college admissions and it, they asked you who would you most want to meet uh living or dead uh and have have dinner with and and why that was sort of the question and i thought about it and of course i had you know jackie robinson there were some really figures but i said you know i want you know i want something different and i thought about it and i, and I chose john oates and what i wrote about was 
champion of the underdog, right? He, you know, knowing that he was an equal contributor to their great success, and you know, but it was more behind the scenes when it came to the camera being on, right? The vocals and the background and harmonizing and all that. So uh, I thought it was a fascinating discussion on the underdog and why that's important and how I care about sort of what we talked about earlier in social justice and equality. And yeah, and it was just, you know, it came off as this different kind of essay using a, a musical passion and combining it with just being a, a pure fan with some of the things I cared about. So, um, but yeah, I, I fell in love with their music Probably in, when I heard Kiss on my list was probably the first song I remember oh, yeah. resonating, maybe 81, yeah, 1980, 81 in there. And, uh, and, you know, and the thing that was so fascinating is it, I, I did not know what they looked like. It wasn't like I didn't have cable at the time. And, and so I thought they were sort of a Motown act and like soul group <laughs> and whatever, which they are a soul group. And they are actually a Motown act. But I, my, my bias was like, they, well, they're definitely African-American, right? So, and then when I saw the video, I was like, my jaw was on the ground. Right? <laughs> and, but it was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was a great thing, though, because I think, you know, I, I've told John this in various ways and written millions of essays I haven't published on them. But the, the main thing that it was really important because I once I connected, I stayed with them and their music resonated and I dove in and I was proud about my uh, the sort of musical relationship with Paul and Oates and, and I think it, it became another transcending element of bridging these differences that we have culturally sometimes with race and religion and and um, and I think that was really important to me and I, I, I used to literally, I was like Pandora before there was Pandora in the <laughs> 80s, I would go around and I, I'm telling you, I had I had a Hall and Oates Pandora. I would go to people and ask them, "What kind of music do you like?" and and make it make a a tape then a cassette for me. I'd play it, listen, say, "Okay, they like Peter Frampton or whatever," and then I'd go through Hall and Oates albums and make an album for that person, customized to their taste. Because I wanted part of it was just you know I love music and all that, but part of it was fun to show that they had a music for everyone. That you know they had genres across the board. They played anything you could think of. They had rap and reggae and soul and bluegrass and 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 I'm sure John you know can elaborate on those things but I think the the main thing is that they were they covered so many different um genres of yeah. music mm -hmm. and I I would say they have one chord like this universal chord for for everybody yeah, I think and, it's the Ramones uh, but yet they can one keep chord, their integrity <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah so no but that was that's where it began and and I met them uh, I met them because my fifth grade teacher, who was sixth grade also, her husband wrote for, he was an editor for Guitar Magazine, and he knew Hall Notes and knew the band particularly. T-Bone used to write, their bass player, so write for them. So I, I, I remember going to a party when I was 13, and I kept talking about making it to the big league. So he said, look, I'll make a bet with you. And he wrote it, I remember it was Nancy Wilson of Heart. He, and she, he wrote over the centerfold picture. I mean, I don't mean centerfold, literally, like her and a guitar. And, stuff. and it was... Um, said, hey, if you make it to the big leagues, I'll introduce you to Daryl Hall and John Oates. And that was when I was 13. Uh -huh. And when I got to the big leagues, you know one of the first calls I made. <laughs> John okay, you got to deliver. It was 15 years later. I, I had met them at Radio City Music Hall backstage, and I brought every... I was, a, I was on the Phillies at that time. And I brought every memorabilia. I also brought stuff for T-Bone. And John... John Oates was so nice. I remember we were backstage still talking, and the, the, the concert started. The music was going in the beginning, in the intro. And I was like, I kind of cut him off, said, don't you have to go on? He's like, no, nah, man, I got about three more minutes. You know, he stayed with me right up until he had to go on stage. <laughs> wow. 
And uh, I always remember that. And, you know, so we kind of stayed friends after that. That's awesome. I mean, they've got a, I mean, they've got a, a pretty iconic musical catalog. So I want to start with, is there a song that you have a special connection to? I, I, a lot of times when, when people talk about their favorite bands, they can go right into their rankings of favorite songs, favorite albums. But like, which song or maybe songs do you just, when you hear it kind of evokes a certain mood or a certain memory uh, right off the bat? Well, my, my short answer is all of them, really. They all, because I, I followed them through so many stages and phases of my life, and, and I felt like it paralleled a lot, like when they took a break and weren't making music, new music, and I, I could relate a lot to the changes they went through in the 90s and the grunge thing came in, and melodies and harmonies dropped off, and they were kind of adrift, and I could relate to all this. Like his book, Change of Season, John Oates wrote a book called Change of Season. But the, the song, if I pick one song, that kind of changed everything. It was out of touch. It was 1984. Oh yeah. The album was big bamboo. And it was like the digital era was coming and they made this song that was like remixed. And it, it was very universally uh, played on R and B stations and it was everywhere in, and covered so many different genres within one song. And I could not get enough of that song. I played that that morning, noon, and I love the video. I know they take heat for holding us to heat for their videos, but I love their video. Um, and that that one in particular was just so cool. The big drums, and so that that was it. And that was a defining moment. And you know, they they didn't they took a break shortly thereafter and started to make sort of less music because they had been on top of the world for for years. But that that was the song I'd pick. Were you the type of player that would throw Hall and Oates on the clubhouse, you know, boombox, and then get in a fight with someone if they try to turn it off? I mean, were you, did you stake your claim in the clubhouse? <laughs> no, but I, I, I was a quiet advocate. I slipped <laughs> CDs just like I did in, in high school and junior high. Like, I, I mean, there, it's to the point I'm telling you, there's people I know, you know, all, every possible perspective immediately think of me when they hear Hall and Oates. Like, that's how deep it is. And it, and it goes the spectrum. And Michelle Beadle from ESPN, you know, whoever. I mean, it's, they hear it and they go, oh, wow. You know, because like, I, I, it's just sort of what I talk about. It's one of the things that if you know me, you're just going to know that uh, this, is, um, this is a passion of mine. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, I, I took it as an honor. I mean, yes, they, they took criticism in the 80s, you know, roller skating, music, things like that. But I knew that they had albums, they had like nine, ten albums before they had their big monster hit. They had, they had gotten their chops by experimenting and traveling the world and trying to, you know, styles and being with different producers. I mean, they were musicians in the, in the deepest form. So, and when the 80s rolled around, they had captured their own voice by kind of self-producing. And, um, and you know, so I, I could relate to the fact that they tried different things, just like I was, I came from a town that was one of the first in the country to voluntarily integrate through busing. So I was around many different kinds of people. So I related well to a, a musicality that, that kind of fit all kinds of people. Yeah. So, you know, it, you know, I feel fortunate that I found a, a, a group or music that just really connects with me. It, and I think most of us have that, but you know, I, I really developed it and, um, you know, and continue to enjoy it. So falling in love with a group between the 80s and now puts you in a position where you have most likely purchased Hall & Oates' albums and songs in a, in a million different ways. If you had to guess, how many different like albums do you think you've actually purchased over and over again? Like if you had to add all the different, like tapes plus vinyl plus digital downloads. 
Wow. I, I, I mean, well, you can just take whatever their catalog is. I mean, it's, it's deep. I'm going to throw a number out there, like you know, 17, 18 albums, whatever. Uh, I, I've bought them all, you know, multiple times. However, <laughs> way they change, right? I mean, I mean, the tapes eventually stop, so I, I don't want to double count. But, uh, but I, yeah, I bought them all over in CD. I've, down, I've downloaded them. I always think, all right, I'm supporting Hall and Oates too. It's like a cause, right? So, yeah. I'm glad I, you know, put my two cents per track download or whatever. But um, yeah, I've done ringtones. Uh, my my wife's <laughs> ringtone is kissed on my list. I mean, that, yeah, it's deep, man. But um, what's your ringtone? But also, you know, uh, it, I have out of touch on it. It's not consistent. I, I kind of switch it off. I think right now it's pretty standard. But uh, but you know, you, you always have to. To me, I, I have to get the right part of the song for it to be a good ringtone. And I haven't really been able to master that editing thing. So I <laughs> I generally just sort of go back to the, the standard. But yeah, I've I've bought and you know I couldn't tell tens of concerts too. I mean I've been. All over. I've seen them in college. One All Star break during Major League All Star break. I was with the Phillies. I flew to Colorado to see them in a country western bar in Denver. Oh wow! So that tells you the depth of that. I, that was how I spent the entire All Star break. I got a hotel. It was like standing room only, and they just went. So, um, but it's fun. But I, I mean, I love all music. It, it, there's no doubt. I listen to everything under the sun. But I, obviously, this was uh, this is my favorite. Did you play in the era where? Where it's hard for me to remember, like was rock music on the way to the plate standard, and did you ever have any Hall and Oates songs that you walked out to? Uh, yeah, it was it was standard when I got into the midst of my career. I think it kind of came on uh, even in Double A, like '94 somewhere. And I remember music, but but in Philly they let us have four or five different tracks. So I I showed my eclectic taste. I had a I had Peter White with like a jazz song. I had. I had Eros Ramasotti, who's like an Italian singer with Tina Turner. I had, but because they had cool beats, I had yeah. Naughty by Nature. But I had, um, I can't go for that. It was Holiday. I did that beginning with the initial part. So, uh, yeah. So, and I always loved watching playing against Desi Relaford because he would be when that, that song came out, he'd be bopping his head at shortstop or third. <laughs> I could see it was, it was pretty funny. So it was. Um, but yeah, and, and that song, you know, number one R and B, number one pop. I mean, it was really uh, crossed over into a lot of genres. What uh, What's the album that you think is like most criminally underrated? Like, where do you you know? Because again, when you have a band like this, that's you know, a, everybody knows, and they have so many, you know, they have so many popular songs. Do you do you like to kind of in your in your advocate role? Do you like to throw out like, hey, you need to go. Here's a deep cut, or here's a Here's an album that you probably haven't heard that you need to get. Well, there, there's no doubt. Easy answer. Abandoned Luncheonette, no doubt. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's seventies. It's got it's the songs are kind of short, so it's not a long album. And they their producer. It was when they were with Atlantic, and the producer was like a guru. It's like this Turkish ambassador's son. That uh, I think his name is Arif Mandi, not Arif Mandi. I'm thinking, yeah, it's something close to that. But he he um, put in almost this orchestral kind of flavor, right? He did, uh, and and I think John talks about how he elevated had to elevate his game because they had instruments he had never heard of and he wanted to go back and study and so on so yeah that's that's the one that that has a, like she's gone is on there i mean say no more right the, yeah. the greatest harmonizing song of theirs and but um but that's the one and, and it just went platinum not long ago so imagine that it came out in the 70s and it just went platinum and they finally sold their millionth copy but it took like 40 years or something. <laughs> so um 
So that's that's it's timeless. Uh, and there's like I like Beauty on the Back Street. It got like no love, but seventy like late seventies. It had kind of some pretty cool tracks on it, but it did. It, it was a period of a few albums that didn't sell. But while that was happening, people were re-releasing some of their old songs, like Sarah Smile and She's Gone. So they were playing new music, and their old music were becoming hits. So they actually got success in reverse in time, which was really interesting. Like someone did a cover of She's Gone, it went number one R&B, and then they re-released it. So they were already making new music and trying all kind of crazy stuff, and these albums, these songs started to become hits again. So it was a kind of strange way they got to the top of the charts. But um, And then the 80s came, and that was it. They were they were legends by then. Is that, is that John right now? Hey, Brad. Hey, Doug. How's it going, man? Hey, John. How are you doing? Um, um, I know you had a busy, up, busy night in LA, right? Yeah, waking up after a busy night in LA, but uh, it's good. It's all good. We started with uh, he <laughs> recounted the he recounted meeting you backstage, and he said that you, you pushed it all the way to like three minutes, two minutes before you had to go on. You kept talking to him. Do, do you remember that? Do you remember that interaction and 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 what your maybe your first impressions of Doug were at the time? Uh, Doug seemed like a nice guy at the time, but anything I can do to avoid playing man eater again, um, I will <laughs> as long as I can. <laughs> um, I mean, D- Doug has described himself, and Doug, I don't know, I, I, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth as like one of your big, you know, your big advocate. How do you process? Uh, how do like, uh, you know, being a rock star like yourself, like how do you process when you meet people who are successful in these other industries that are that are. St- you know, super fans of, of you and your music, um, you know, and, 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 and advocate and love it to the degree that Doug does. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I appreciate Doug big time. I mean, he's a, from the very beginning, you know, I could tell that, you know, he, 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 not only was he a fan of the music, but he really understood the music. He, he seemed to get it. And, uh, I picked up on that really quickly. And, and, you know, Doug is, uh, obviously, you know, his, his athletic success, notwithstanding, you know, that he, He's super bright and intuitive, and I really, I just knew that from the beginning, and it's, it's been a great uh, getting to know him over the years, and he was, uh, you know, he even picked up on things like, you know, the, 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 the high quality of, of the musicians in our band, and especially of Tom T-Bone Wolf, who, who I know Doug, Doug will tell you, Doug was a huge fan of, of T-Bone, and he realized how important he was to uh, what Daryl and I do and, and, uh, and all that. So, you know, just from the very beginning, I knew that, you know, uh, that, that he was a kindred spirit who really got what was happening, and, uh, and you know, and with the Philadelphia connection and all that when he was playing for the Phillies, and and, you know, he invited us to the games and, you know, my son got out to, you know, change the bases and went into the locker room and we still have the bat that Doug broke uh, that, that particular game. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that he signed to our son and it's just been, a, it's been a great, uh, it's been great, great getting to know him over the years. Yeah. Doug, I mean, um, have you ever been on stage? Have you, have you gone up and, and, and sang at any shows? <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to bring the level down, man. I mean, I got. You know, I got. It's like uh, I, I have not. I've. Uh, I've been completely uh, happy. I was one. There was one show, and I think it was in Delaware, where they they were going through like a request line period. They were. They would say they'd throw yeah. it to the crowd and say any requests, and people would have signs up. And I and I knew I was sitting in a great spot where I was. I was like going to block everybody, so I had this big sign, and it was some. It was actually a Daryl Hall solo song. That they weren't going to play because they were. I think they were doing "It's a Laugh" was sort of the main one, and I could see John like kind of. They were like looking around me, and he was just laughing at the time. I was like, <laughs> "Someone like you." Let me tell you how that request thing really works in, in the real world. 
Um, you know, you tell you tell the audience you want to take a quest, and then you you basically have selective uh, perception on what on, on the songs you actually pick up on. You know, because you know you're really going to play the song you want to play regardless. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it's fun. Well, I mean, one of and one of the things I I shared with John, like writing. I mean, when they had their box set come out, it was sort of my life. I mean, the years that literally printed on the box was like 1907 to 2012 or something like that. So at the time, and and I. I think what was what's been a great reward for me is you don't often get a chance to sort of thank and give back to the musicians that sort of you know were the song the sort of the wor- the world of your music in your youth and growing up and uh, you don't often get that opportunity because you know sure there's there's millions of, and you know they have millions of fans and and I think that's what I was grateful for because. You know, it's one thing to just be like oh I want to meet someone and take a selfie with them it was just important and validating to to meet. The, the team and meet John and, and see the genuine uh, person that he is and just the, the life that they have spanned. Uh, that, that's, that's been really the best thing for me just to be able to uh, have that opportunity. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful to just get that chance to be like, you know, thank you. And if I can throw any of my creative juices to, to thank you in terms of expression, I, I try to do that. Yeah, I appreciate you saying it. But I, listen, I feel the same way because when I had my when my book came out this past year, um, and uh, we were doing a book event in New York, um, my first thought was to ask Doug if he would help moderate it and um, and be part of it. And I, you know, and I knew he was going to do a good job, and I knew I knew he would, you know, really get get into it. But to to the extent that he got into it, blew kind of blew my mind. I mean, Doug came came so, so overly prepared that I mean, we could have done a five hour you know um, lecture on on, on it. <laughs> Um, and it was, it was it was really great. I mean, it was really great to to be able to sit with him, you know, in that kind of context and get a, go a little deeper into into the stuff as opposed to just you know kind of the more general questions that I, I get like ninety percent of the time. Yeah, I mean, when did this? You, you talk about you know you met when um, you know Doug was in the big leagues, and and I'm sure that over the years, I mean, you, you meet all sorts of different. Um, athletes or celebrities that follow you for music. When did the relationship sort of blossom into more of a of a friendship, and and how has that friendship kind of created mutual understanding, or or how have you learned from each other um, in ways that may have influenced your crafts? Well, you know, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's really much more of a of, of a relationship, you know, that 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 was nurtured through uh, the fact that you know Doug. Uh, Appreciated the music, and you know, it wasn't just kind of a fan thing. It, it, you know, he, it, the music actually meant something to him, and I, I knew I picked up on that right away. And and over the years, you know, we we'd, uh, you know, we always had he always had an open invitation to any show we wanted to come, and he'd come and bring his family, got to know his family, and and that doesn't really happen very often in my world, you know, because you're moving so quickly, you know, you're always in a different city, um, you know. Obviously, there's a lot of people that you kind of come in contact with, but it's always very kind of uh, peripheral, you know. You you meet them, you a quick hi, a quick picture, whatever. But but with Doug over the years, you know, we just uh, we've seen each other a lot, and uh, it's been great, you know, see his kids and things like that and see him become a family man and, and, and see how he's, he's, uh, he's taking, you know, his success in athletics and, and, and really just moved into his, his writing is great. You know, I enjoy his, his columns, uh, which I keep up on. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's been cool. It's been more of a, you know, a true friendship as opposed to just one of those casual fan things. And I would say that writing, writing, writing is music. I mean, it, it really is. 
mean, yeah. that's how I see it, and that's what resonates for me when I, I mean, I did play piano for quite a long time as a kid, and I, you know, sort of, you know, continue to pick up, and I'll do, like, chord progressions and different things even today. Like, when Hamilton, the musical, came on, I got it back because my daughter loves it, and I, I'll play, like, Burn and different songs. So I, I kind of understood at least some of the fundamentals, and, and when I write, I always think about how I'm going to resolve the, the piece, you know, and there's a there's a musicality through it, and I've um and I, and I think when you find um, some music that connects on such a visceral deeper level, it, it will influence your craft. You know, it's a rhythm, and and so many things we do are rhythmic, and you know, writing is certainly part of that. So I've I've always you know my life has always kind of evolved around uh, you know so much of what the catalog of Hall Notes and John Notes is done. I've really appreciated John's solo career. You know, he's he's been prolific and touched on so many different genres and he's uh been, you know, risk taking and, and does so many things because, you know, they they had certainly their ups and downs of their career and financial life and all the things that come with the, the level that they they'd attained. So I would say it's had a rich impact on you know, my professional life also. Yeah, I mean, Doug, the key question here is, is, are you a good singer and what's your go-to karaoke jam, um, you know, from the Hall Notes catalog? <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I'm okay. I, I, I know notes. I, I really don't have any discipline in my, my vocals, so I've had zero training whatsoever. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I'll throw a song out there, Possess and Obsession. I could, I could kind of hang with that, you know, because there's like a deep um, – and the, the range he stays in in that song. Now, I can't do doo-wop and all the parts of the, the um, harmony and the chorus and so on. But, um, but that's one that, that jumps to my mind. I mean, you know, Darrell with the sort of higher pitch was always I, – I, I had no chance of, like, keeping up at that height. So, but you know, John has that sort of what do I call it? I call it grit soul. Or <laughs> we had that one time. <laughs> it has that soul, you know, deep bluesy, uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 fantastic. And so much of I love his solo work. I, I have all of it. I play it all the time. And and so I, I don't know where I fit on. I might have a better chance at a at a solo show to kind of hang in there for a couple of notes. <laughs> but that's that's probably the best exactly. I can do. Doug, while 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 we were just uh, we were just talking, I just sent you a link to my new album. Uh, the oh, really? Yeah, so awesome. I figured you know you said you wanted to hear some solo stuff, and I said, okay, man, I got to send it to you. So uh, I literally just emailed you a link to it. All right, I uh, appreciate it. I'll Bre- check it out. <laughs> breaking news here on the Just Not Sports podcast. I love it, uh, Doug. What are the odds I can get you to sing a few bars of one of your songs in front of the man himself? Um, uh oh, not, not great, not great. Maybe maybe if I jump in with him or something, it's hey, yeah, open I, floor, I, I, guys. If if we well, can get, I'll tell you the the cra- you know crazy eyes. He has a song. They, well, it was under the Hall Notes umbrella, but John wrote, I believe, and wrote and uh, yeah. arranged Crazy Eyes. I always love that song. I, I think it'd be a great song to bring back. It's got this funky bass, and uh, yeah, that, that's that's a good song, and it, it's. Yeah, I mean that's my vote. If he ever does a remake, that's the song I would I would throw out there. <laughs> so. Doug, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get you off the hook here. Um, I actually was I actually rehearsed that with the with the Hall and Oates band the other day. Um, what? Just on a whim, uh, I just I, I I thought you know what it's a song I haven't played in since the '70s, and I played it with the band and they started to learn it. So I think maybe on the next tour I might bring that out. Okay. 
I mean, just to kind of to kind of wrap a bow around this, um, it's such a pleasure to have both of you on, uh, John. I know you have a show tonight, so you know we we can wrap up and let you go. But uh, you know, it's a it's a great story. Uh, I think I think listeners love seeing this side of of the athletes and and media that they uh, that they follow. Sports fans do, and and it was a pleasure having you both on. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, now, can I go back to sleep? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, John, for getting up. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> No Good problem. show tonight. <laughs> Anytime. Thanks, Doug. It's great to talk to you guys. Yeah, Doug, uh, it, to sort of uh, yeah, thank you for doing yeah. that. Uh, just, just to sort of wrap up in terms of um, in terms of final questions, I guess you, I mentioned, you know, y- your family, like what is what is the way that you sort of are processing, like how you're going to communicate not just the love of the band, but what the songs meant. I thought about this a lot. Gareth and I, uh, you know, I have a four year old and, and a new 10 uh, month old and and so my four-year-old is just starting to sort of get into uh, music as a as a as a thing that goes beyond just you know um, you know kid songs and and I, I think very mindfully of and intentionally about what kinds of music I want to expose her to and when and 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 how will I talk about it and how do I put it into the context of my life. So what's that like for you with 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 Hall and Oates specifically knowing that you've spent decades talking about it with others? Like how do you think about it within your own home? Well, you know, I mean, it's a great question, and I think the when is I thought was also really insightful in thinking about the timing of music. And you know, you you feel down, you feel up, you want to hear a certain song, and uh, you know, they, for example, they I have four kids, the three oldest play piano once a week. They go to lessons, and they're getting a sense of like I have a certain mood. I want to sit down and create, and and I I love what how music can can. Uh, help you with those types of expressions right and 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 then it's how you play it right you could smash the keys you could play softly you could play slow jams or whatever it is and uh, I, I think for me it was important because it's a legacy thing right my my life has been integrally uh, sort of intricately connected to uh, the music of Daryl Hall and John Oates it's been you know it's many years now decades and I want to pass that on to my kids that appreciation the music that you share and you listen to in the house, right? You kind of like, you come home from work and we, we try to have music on a lot, especially uh, driving somewhere, driving to school, wherever we're going. I try to put songs on. And I mentioned earlier, you know, the Hamilton, the musical, for example, was huge in our family. I mean, we listened to that for like a year straight <laughs> and, yeah. and it was important, but, but we also taught history through it as an example, right? It's, there's moods, there's styles, it's rap history, it's R&B, it's got this, a lot of other, but it's also being able to have an inroad into talking about the, revol- the American Revolution, right? And, and the war and, and the Declaration of Independence. And, um, and, and that's you know, one way you can sort of capture. Uh, and, and even if the song doesn't directly address something historic, you have a, a time frame especially when you're going back and, you know, hauling out 60s, 70s, 80s, what were you doing? I mean, my daughter, I mean, I told John this, he laughs all the time. My da- daughters, two of them, mostly, I'd say once a week, at least they want to hear a John Oates story for bedtime. They literally like it, <laughs> you know, because I read the book and I, yeah, I just, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you know, I tell them, just, you know, and a lot of it's, you know, times I met or went to a concert, but some of it's just like stuff from his life and his book. And they, so you teach through that. So they have a different, you know, connection with the music. But but it's true for you know any any kind of music. Well, let me. You, you mentioned making mixtapes. So let me close out with this. We don't live in an era of mixtapes anymore. By the way, I'm picturing the way I made mixtapes was like on my butt on the floor next to the stereo, sitting there for like three right. hours 
sore knees when it's done. I, I know all the all about the the sweat that goes into a great mixtape. So we're we're now in the era of playlists. So if you could give us like your five to seven song playlist for someone to take out or run with them, like uh, or or just running errands, doing whatever they're doing, like what would you what would you drop in and why? Oh man, are we? And we're outside of the Hall and Oates uh, range, or no? I would, I would say let's do uh, let's do Hall and Oates because I was the type of guy that would do. Hey, this is my all REM mixtape, and I would go. You know, it'd be like just, <laughs> I'd basically just be mixing up their greatest hits. But back in the day, greatest hits meant you had to buy another album for seventeen bucks. You know, who wanted to do that? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of my tapes now they they get played faster. You know, sometimes the speed wasn't quite right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the wow. I mean, I've I've always had trouble of picking my favorite songs for them because it's just they have such different significance. Um, you know, but you know, I remember well certainly out of touch. Right. That, that's yep, an easy That's one. my favorite that's too. A, I think that would capture a lot of uh, different sound. I mean, I and I love like Sarah Smile is fantastic and she's gone i think she's gone to me sort of sums up their their musical dynamic you know the harmonizing the vocals the range you know sort of i mean that that's just a great song and um so many i mean i i, I mean i i'm just throw i could throw a lot of songs at you i mean i i liked everything your heart desires and the reason i like that that's sort of an 88 track and but for me it was they'd kind of not they went quiet for a little while after 84. They did Live at the Apollo somewhere in there in 86 or something. That was sort of their culmination of meeting their heroes, the Temptations, and singing with them. Not meeting, they already met them, but singing with them and performing at the Apollo Theater. And then they were quiet. Their next album was Ooh Yeah, and, and that song came out. So it was like, oh, they're back. You know, that was, that was like, that was really important to me. But then I could go to Do It For Love in 2003, the song Intuition I really liked. And, um, and when they did their, their our kind of soul throwback songs from some of the top R and B soul hits from from Motown and, and beyond, I mean it, it's it's almost it's almost really it's really difficult. Well, one thing that was special to me is Method of Modern Love. That was on '84. That was my dad's favorite song hmm. by Hall and Oates, and he, he passed 15 years ago. And um, because it had all the the instruments and the, the, the you know different wasn't quite steel drums, but it had like a you know just so almost like a Caribbean. And my dad was from Trinidad and Tobago, so that was a really special song for me. Uh, but it, it, the list goes on. I mean, Private Eyes, such a great album. Um, and uh, but as you know, I just remember walking through time through their music. I mean, that, and they were prolific and they were consistent, so they were always kind of reinventing. And it, it's really special when you could survive so long as they have musically still sell out in huge venues but um but also they didn't repeat their music you know they talk about this sometimes like they didn't say here's man oh let's make man eater too so we can sell that <laughs> you know, they actually yeah they just never repeated they just kind of right. created and started over and i think that's that's really amazing especially with the pressure to be like okay you got a number one hit let's do another one uh, uh and i think that tells me that they're paying attention to the times and they're confident in their ability to create, um, you know, music for whatever mood or different styles. Um, it's, it's very cool. And each, each album is kind of special. I'm sure to them is, you know, like a, like a baby almost. They, they put in a lot. So, uh, but I, you know, my kids, I just want them to, to sort of 
have that in their life, whether it's Hall and Oates or whatever band becomes their their uh, their number one passion point. But so far, they're they're all happy with Daryl Hall and John, and, they, and they've <laughs> met John, and and uh, it's it's uh, pretty amazing to think of that. Like, wow, it's. I mean, I went to my first show with them was 1984. Wow. So now we're 30, you know, 33 years later, and um, it, you know, pretty pretty amazing what's changed in those 33 years. Yeah. Well, you know, you've given us so much time and we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the backstory, not just about the, you know, your connection with, with, with the band, with John, but also about, you know, the, the, the writing you're doing and the work you're doing on a, just a variety of issues. So, you know, best of luck with, with the, you know, with, with career 2.0, which is off to a great, you know, a, you know, great start clearly. And, and, uh, and also best of luck continuing to use, uh, John Oates's life story for bedtime, um, you know anything that anything that gets kids to to sleep, man. We are one hundred percent for. Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> And we are back in the sports world. We know that when athletes, coaches, media do cool things, they are instantly destroyed online by all the crazies who want them to go back into the film room. We think that is ridiculous. Liking stuff that's great does not make you a distraction because the things that distract you are the things that make us who we are. Guys, I thought that sounded poetic. Wow. How about that? <laughs> Someone jot that down. I'll do it again next week. So right now on the show, we're going to tell you what's been distracting us. Guys, I'm going to go first because I have a question for you both. Okay. Adam. Adam, start with you. Give me your answer. When did everybody start saying... 100 percent uh you mean keep it 100 or just 100 percent no i think he I means mean, like 100 i thought about this recently too it's 100 really good question brad like joe um, reed says it all the time in fact if, if joe was editing this podcast instead of me i would make joe do a super cut of joe saying 100 percent. but it has it has become the sort of phrase du jour for saying i agree and Adam, my suspicion was also that it was a a white person spinoff of keeping it 100, but I don't know if that's right. the case. I think they may have happened simultaneously, but I would say within the last three to four years, and no, I don't know where it came from or why it is so prevalent. But I think you're right to point out that it's everywhere. 100%. Oh, yeah. I, the, 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 <laughs> the last... The last thing that I can remember, the last thing like this I can remember being so widespread was when Let's Do It changed to Let's Do This. Like, I was like, the, you know, about, about 10 years ago is when people stopped saying Let's Do It. And now I'm just like, all right, maybe I guess 100% is just going to be the way we say I agree from now until whenever it fades away. <laughs> when did, and I think that this literally are. I, well, that's what it, uh, that was what the word I was going to use. Um, the word literally was redefined by Webster's dictionary. Wasn't it like, if you said I was so mad, I literally blew up. Well, of course you didn't literally spontaneously combust, but the word literally is overused and misused. I see it in sports all of the time when did that change 
with the How Did This Get Made podcast, guys. That's what changed really? that. No, but it, it they, they say literally, it's become a joke because they're like, I was literally vomiting on my balls and then <laughs> people started calling him out for it oh, by yeah, the way right. uh by the way i'm i'm now distracted by the just not sports bowl as the Bengals have pulled ahead 14-7 uh-oh upset alert your Bengals will find a way to mess it up we both know that yes yes all right uh gareth what's distracting you this week so guys, I had to take a flight. Uh, I had to do a shoot out in Chicago this week, and the best part, honest to God, I think my single favorite part of going to Chicago and going through O'Hare Airport is nuts on Clark. Really? Oh, come on, oh, bro! No. Come <laughs> on. That's like when that I, whenever perfect. I'm in New York, I always go to. Whenever I'm in New York, I always go to that little that little bistro. Uh, pot belly uh so authentic <laughs> so authentic you know? well, so, no so this is why i'm bringing it up i want to like that is my favorite airport snack in america it's like caramel corn i get it with cashews it's delicious um and it seems to be a chicago thing but clearly i have stepped in something like profoundly uncool oh, so tell me yeah. what nuts on clark is really about Oh, you're like Joe Reed's two socks right now. This is terrible. <laughs> it's like it's not bad. It's just it's just popcorn. Like I don't think Cliche. of it as, as like a it's like a signature. I don't know. I guess it's a signature place. I just I don't think of it as like oh man, I gotta I gotta get there. If, if you had said to me you're in Chicago, you gotta roll up and grab something, it would be like the hundredth thing on my mind. You know, it would not be near the top of my list. Well, I did manage to get like a legit Chicago dog. So I want to put that on the list just because we were going to get we were going to get lunch and we were actually going to like a a Jersey Mike's or something. We were like it was a shoot day. We were just hungry and we were walking into Jersey Mike's and we looked next door and there's a place called the dog out. And I was like, I'm just going here. And we all just went in there, and it was like it was the real deal with celery salt and tomatoes and pickles and things. There you like go. That. So that was awesome. And and I wonder, I want to make one other clarification. It's not like I'm getting into the city and then driving around to find nuts on Clark. It is my favorite airport snack, or like destination yeah. airport snack. Understood. So that's, I think that that is fair. A... Yeah, it, O'Hare is not known for. I mean, it's either that or like Rick Steves. You know, I mean, like <laughs> <it's>, no. <laughs> Rick Bayless. I hit the yeah. Duncan. Uh, Rick Bayless, yeah. Not Rick Steves. He's a travel guy, yeah. I'll tell you, I was in the Minneapolis airport on Friday, and that, the American wing, I don't know, maybe it's the whole airport, but the American wing uh, of the Minneapolis airport may be my favorite airport in America. I bought a face wash from Kiehl's. Uh, I had a <laughs> lovely meal at the uh, brewery slash sports bar. And then I bought a book on strategy um, from the little bookstore. I walked around the Minneapolis airport probably for a good uh, 45, 50 minutes checking out all the little shops. It was delightful. Ah. Uh. Nice. I, airport I, living. 
I hate talking about the airport on a Sunday when I'm not traveling. So, Adam, let's move on. What's distracting you this week? Well, nothing's really distracting me. I've been busy. Uh, I need a vacation. And so if anyone is listening, uh, I find fishing to be the single most relaxing thing uh, that a person can do. I love it. I rarely get to do it. I don't even know where good spots are. So if you are a devoted Just Not Sports listener, you're into fishing, and I can fly to you, and you can take me out, my cell phone number is 920-883-5567. Once again, 920-883-5567. Please... Give me a call or text, and uh, I will come to you, and we will go fishing. I promise. Guys, sports update. Adam. If you go fishing, you're going to miss days like today where the Just Not Sports Bowl is now 21-7. Oh! Bengals over the Packers. I think Aaron Rodgers just threw, like, his first pick six in years or something like that. All the more reason to go. Oh, man. All the more reason to go fishing. Amen to that. (laughs) All right, Adam, take us out. As usual, I'd like to shout out my good fishing buddies, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Lil Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and and the guy who cleans the fish, my other cousin Ron. Oh, love those guys. Love those guys. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, rapper extraordinaire, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty.